Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's good, Wild Black family? Welcome to part two of this episode focusing on prisons and, and education. I know you had to be looking forward to this one because we left you on a cliffhanger. Hearing about Illy's relationship with her father and how it formed, how it shaped, she's about to give you that now. It is going to inform so much of why she does the work she does, and it's going to move you. Each of the panel members from today's episode and last week's episode are powerful speakers who work from a place of passion, impact, and promise for tomorrow. I know you will be changed, as will your perceptions be changed as a result of listening today. If this is your first time with us for whatever reason, one, where the hell you been? Two, go back, start with last week's episode because this is a continuation. This is part two. With no further ado, welcome to Wild Black. Peace. So my dad was violated parole, went back to and spent another five years in another correctional facility. But when he returned home, he had become so institutionalized that he wanted to live in the cinder block basement of my grandmother's house. And that's where he stayed and lived until he died. My father would, when he got out, I was 15 years old. The first time he got out, I was 15. The second time I was in my finishing college. And he made us schedule visits with him. He had been so used to the visitation schedule at Attica, he didn't realize that, number one, he could come see us whenever he wanted, and we can go and visit him. And so this criminal legal system just strips everything from you. Welcome to Wild Black. A seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while Black. If Black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all-Black everything. Yeah. And how that impacted you. So just so you all know, it's it, it's a lot for me to tell my lived experience. And so I did not really start doing you. that till about maybe six years ago. I've been doing this work mm-hmm. for 15 years. A lot of people kept pushing because they said, you're not a lawyer. Oh, that's another thing. I'm not a lawyer. I just run a national nonprofit full of lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so the question people always say, wow. assumed you right. were. Yeah, I speak like them sometimes. I'm also wondering where the hell did I go wrong? <laughs> 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 but yeah, so I'm not a lawyer, but I do this work. And so when my dad was arrested, he spent 10 years in Attica, another five, he was out. He violated parole. That's another thing mm. is these, par- oh. Oh. what your educator, uh, your listeners need to know mm. is understand parole is a joke for people mm-hmm. because it is not like you can return and you can live a life. They get you for, you jaywalk and it violates your your record, you could get sent back for jaywalking. Right. Sounds awfully close to those vagrancy laws. Yeah, so yeah, if you're mm-hmm. home, yeah, all of that. So my dad was violated parole, went back to and spent another five years in another correctional facility. But when he returned home, 
he had become so institutionalized that he wanted to live in the cinder block basement of my grandmother's house. Oh, and that's where he stayed and lived until he died. My father oh, would, and when he got out, I was 15 years old. The first time he got out, I was 15. The second time I was in my finishing college. And he made us schedule visits with him. He had been so used to the yeah. visitation schedule at Attica, he didn't realize that, number one, he could come see us whenever he wanted, and we can go and visit him. And so this criminal legal system just strips everything from you. And he was very smart. He got his undergraduate degree, his master's while in prison, could have come out and done anything. But there's nothing for people who are coming out of the system because they make you check that damn box. Yeah. And people have to understand if you've done your time, yeah. it's done. You've That's paid right. your debt to society. It's, it's supposed to be Please over. let them work yeah. and live and be. And that, vote. And yes. vote. Right, right. Right? And that didn't happen to my Makes dad. Makes you wonder so. what it's really about. So, yeah. Right. And so my dad, right. he, mm-hmm. he died um, uh, in 2010, I believe it was. And he never, we were very tight when I was a little girl. He, we were not that close when he got out. He was very distant. He couldn't really form meaningful relationships with us um, because when you're in prison, you have to stay guarded. And if you do that in Attica for 10 years mm-hmm. and in another facility for five more, there's, it takes a lot of intervention and support to get you to hug your children and be with your people. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened to him. And so when I say it's personal for me, if someone had just told his story, I don't know what his outcome would have been, but when he went into the system, he was he he was deflated mm-hmm. because no one gave him in, amplified his voice, and mm-hmm. so it made it even worse. So he mm-hmm. went in in a negative, mm-hmm. and came out worse. And so I just mm-hmm. don't want that to happen to other people. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things I'm going to come back to, Sarah. There's a question that she brought up that I that I plan to ask, but I, I want to build just a little bit further into this hero kind of situation. So every hero has two things, right? There's a weakness and there's their enemy, their primary enemy. In this case, I want you all to imagine that the superhero is the work that you do. The work that each of you do is actually the superhero. What would your nemesis be? Man, you you on some real uh, comic Ow. book shit today. I, Once again. I'm like, I'm like, she would love to have that. I would love those questions. In if if wow. it helps, we never share them. No. Mm. That's great. Um, Winfield, what would your nemesis be? I, I'll tell you what Another, I think. She, she pulled out like an attorney. That was some amazing deflection. Yes, yes, it was. But I felt it coming, and I think I'm I, I'm Okay. Um, because mine is going to sound like I'm taking the easy way out, but I'm really not. Um, I'm going to take it from my position um, working with the students at Morehouse. And that is um, lack of funding, mm-hmm. money, um, because that directly impacts the exposure mm-hmm. that we're able to give to the students. You know, I am so happy that, you know, when we have people that obviously donate and contribute because it makes a difference. But, you know, 
I can tell you that just in the partnerships that Morehouse has been able to establish with Common Good Atlanta and with getting his promise and having the mm-hmm. students have this access to see what public interest work is like and what public defense work is, is about, you know, they can make more informed decisions as yeah. to, you know, do I go to this law school because it's higher rank, but they're not giving me any scholarship money and I'm going to come out owing $250,000 worth of debt? Or because I want to do public defense work, I'm going to go to this school because they have, they're going to give me a scholarship and I can do the work that is truly meaningful to me. And so for me, the nemesis always comes back down to money, opportunity, exposure, because um, a lot of times they're interrelated for me and the work that I do. Yeah, I like that. I believe it helps. These I, questions I, I are pre-prepared, I, 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 have, I mean, These really? are all just in-the-moment questions. Are you, so re- you know. You're good. You should, <laughs> like, write my panel questions. <laughs> <laughs> and do stuff. Um, I would just say having a seat at the table. I think my our nemesis, like Winfield mentioned earlier, like this narrative about public defenders. They've been called public pretenders. They couldn't mm. get a job anywhere else. They came from the lowest ranked law school in the country. And all of that is false. Not true. All of that is false. And and when when these decisions about voting rights for people who were formerly incarcerated, when these decisions about what policies ban the box, public defenders are never at the table. They go to prosecutors to get information. They go to police officers to get information. They go to judges. They never go to public defenders when these initial things are happening, right? Because some of the stuff they put out there, we would never say. Mm -hmm. And they never go to people who have lived experience. People who are actually impacted by the system are the best people to get the information from on how to help and change the system. And so a seat at the table is my, ne- the lack of having a seat mm-hmm. at the table, I think is the hardest thing for the work that we do. Um, because back to Sarah's point, proximity is everything. Yeah. And if you don't have those people there, the public defenders and the public defender community there, um, the chain, we're going to have the same issues. We're going to keep having these same issues we see now. Yeah. I would say um, our nemesis, I would go back to how you reframed my moment in the Shakespeare play is, mm-hmm. is, is retelling the narrative. There is a deep narrative mm-hmm. about what people are like who are convicted of crimes. And it is incredibly shallow and flat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's created by media and by tough-on-crime politicians, yeah. period. And it's completely disassociated from the truth. Inside the prison, people who've been convicted of crimes, those students are deeply. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whole, generous, empathetic, brilliant, funny, Mm complex, fascinating, quick, you know, you name it. And they're nothing like what people think of when they think of someone who has a felony conviction. And so I just, that is my nemesis, that public perception of, of of what people who are convicted of a crime are like. And also I think of what college is for, just that it's to get a job. Yeah, It's more than that. I want to build on that. Okay. So I did have a question planned that, 
that you brought up just a moment ago, Ilya, about what the opportunities look like after you're out again. Mm. But I don't want to ask that. I want to I want to tweak it a little bit because as you were talking, I started to think about the role that narrative and therefore the perception that people have impacts folks once they're out of the system, right? Once they're free to walk around the earth as they please to a point again. So while you are focusing on educating, that's only half, probably even a third of the battle, right? Because becoming educated is great, but you are still limited by the opportunities that you can either demand or you're afforded. And those opportunities from listening to what you just said are limited by the narrative told and the perceptions believed, right? How do you help to overcome the limitations that come with living in this system in general when you have helped someone who is now out of the system gain this education? How do you continue to help them when they're going to feel, or at least I assume they're going to feel like they're beating their head against a wall to enact this change that they have created in themselves? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, mean, I know it was long. I no, no, I, I, that's a great question. And I think this is one this is one way in which the different organizations in Atlanta have to be working together. Yeah. Because you know we do offer wraparound support when our alumni get out, or for you don't have to have had our classes inside prison. Right. You know, if you have been system impacted, you can come to our alumni network. Um, that doesn't change having to check the box on an apartment application, right. on a job, right? right? Um, it doesn't change whether or not it, if you move back in with your family, they can receive public benefits because you now have a felony. Mm-hmm. But what, it, what one mm. thing it does is show people on the inside, you are valued yeah. by men like Winfield Murray. Yeah. You know, and, and that there's a lot of cultural capital with a professor in front of your name. Yeah. And and there's um when you learn that you can joke with them, right? I think that's in what what the men and women inside prison often say is it just has been so humanizing to be able to sit in a classroom and have people say, "Okay, but Illy, what do you think?" And then you're allowed to disagree. You're allowed to, it's a space where you can push back against authority. You can't do that anywhere else inside or you're mm-hmm. going to go into solitary confinement. And yet in an educational setting, you are urged to push back, right, against each other. And I think that that is an outlet. It's a channel for understanding your potential as a human being. That's what the men and women say. Yeah. I remembered, I, you know, I got this note one time written on a handkerchief, and it said, thank you for remembering we were human beings before we came to prison. Mm-hmm. Thank you for remembering that we are worth educating. And it's it's heartbreaking that you would write that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But the system does it. The system takes away your name, your clothing, your identity, mm-hmm. your physical relationship with your kids. One hug, and then, you know, you got to step back. Yeah. And so I think that one thing that college can do is just help people remember how much they have to give. As citizens. And then when they yeah. get out, we're still here. We're waiting for them at the gates and cheering. You know, they'll have 15 professors outside the prison gates when they get released. And then they also have people that knew them inside right. because that was a formative, important time, especially when you went in young. 
And we knew you inside, and we knew those relationships that were important to you inside prison, but we also know you on the outside. And boy, I use Leadership Atlanta Mm -hmm. all the time. I just reach out to Leadership Atlanta people and say, you know, does anybody anybody have any leads on jobs that might hire somebody with a criminal background? So those are some of the things. And I think also going back to narrative change, you know, Sarah talked about how the media, how sometimes how we do it to each other and mm-hmm. how we describe each other. Uh, what we work on a lot is how the language we use. If you notice, Sarah said the men and women in prison. She didn't say the Prisoners. felons. Yeah. She didn't say it's it's language that we use. I'm not my situation. Right. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes that one thing, the defendant, mm-hmm. we teach our attorneys you are representing someone, you call them mm-hmm. Mr. Murray or Winfield because then what will happen is if you keep doing it in the courtroom, mm-hmm. you'll turn around. The prosecutor's saying, well, Mr. Murray was it. So now you put, mm-hmm. you've humanized them. Mm-hmm. Love it. Right? Mm-hmm. Love it. And so that's a really simple thing that people don't understand makes a huge difference mm-hmm. and how not just educating the people around them, changing the language, but also making sure that your client understands that I believe that you are human, like we are doing this. And so convicted felon, like the words felon, defendant, um, there's certain language that we at Gideon's Promise, we just do not use. I love that. System impacted, Sarah said, impacted person. Instead of telling my story, I told you my lived experience. Mm. Right. And so those are the type that's language you have to learn. It's just like when we talk about the LGBT, LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. community, you know, and I'm learning how to use the correct pronouns. And I yeah. apologize if I didn't, I don't mean to offend, I am still learning. <laughs> and we're, so we're I think that, and you. I think that is what we need to do, especially people who have the privilege. Um, and if you are sitting in a room or you're listening, to the podcast, you have privilege. Mm-hmm. You have access to mm-hmm. things that other people, and we you 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 should be given back. And one of the things that um, I the mantra I live by, Shirley Chisholm, former congresswoman Shirley Chisholm said, "Service is the rent you pay for room here on this earth." Mm-hmm. And so, if you are living and breathing, then you need to provide some kind of service, yes. whether that is. Going to the prison, whether that is yep. changing your language, that is something that every human being should do. We can and all do we something. We can all do something. Mm-hmm. And and then we get the, uh, and the people that mm-hmm. go, uh, then we got to just let them go. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and no. I, what I love is that, um, Illy, you're, use, you're saying criminal legal system. Oh, that's Instead language. of criminal mm-hmm. justice system. Mm-hmm. The system's not just. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's just take the justice out of I it. I didn't even catch that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's saying criminal legal. It's the nuances. Yeah. Yeah. They make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. They do. And can I just say, too, um, you asked earlier, you said, um, how, what was our origin story? How did we get here? And I, and I want to just say that I had a student by the name of Kara Cobb who attended Spelman. She's now at Harvard Law School. And she wrote this wonderful personal statement called The Butterfly Effect. And it's about mm-hmm. how all of these little things, right, mm-hmm. ripple and make a difference. And I will say that that is part of what keeps me doing this work. So I had the opportunity to go and attend the graduation ceremony at Burris that Common Good Atlanta put on. And I'm just going to say, this is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. That was 
hands down, the best graduation I've ever attended. You're going to get in trouble at Morehouse. It was hands down the best graduation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I had never experienced anything quite like that. First of all, as happy as I was for the students, it was also incredibly sad for me because Mm -hmm. you see the level of talent and intelligence that is behind bars. And, you know, I we had one of the students who was giving a graduation speech while the other student played the cello. And I'm telling you, like, I wanted a CD of this. Mm. Like, it was just that great that I literally could have listened to that every single day. It was that profound. Then when we talk about how individuals get here, right? Hopefully, Sarah, you'll be able to get your hands on the graduation, I mean, the speech by one of the students um, where he talks about in middle school, having a mother who was, you know, addicted to, I think, crack or cocaine or something like that, a sister as well. He was in middle school taking care of two kids, trying to find enough food for them Mm. to eat every day. And it really makes you start to realize and understand that sometimes people don't have the choices that you think that they have. Right. Like sometimes it's really about survival. Right. And when you talk about somebody that made decisions in the moment for survival, and I'm not saying, you know, giving excuses. Right. But what I am saying is, is that sometimes it helps you to understand when you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes and then they still have to come out and they still have to check this box and they still can't vote. And at their core, they really are good people. Like, I, I just don't believe that most people are you know, Jeffrey Dahmer and um, Ted Bundy who, you know, just kill for the fun of it. Like, and, and, or yeah. do things or do bad things just for the fun of it. Like, sometimes they are a product of having to make hard choices for survival. Right. And over 80, was it? I think it's 80, 85 percent of the crimes in this country are nonviolent. Yeah. yeah. That's crimes. Right. We, but, but the media plays on the violent yes. crime part, right? And you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So please, if you can share that at some point, that would be amazing, like the, the graduation speech. But, I will. Yeah. I have permission to record them. We just uh, haven't done it yet. Yeah, that would yeah. be amazing. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Yeah. You know, as I asked the question about Nemesis and I heard you all talking, I was in my own head a little bit and I was thinking, like, what will my answer be? I don't have one. But what <laughs> I do have is a question. Right? Mm-hmm. That's my job, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Where does the system sit as far as nemesis or block, right? Because the work you all are doing, if it works to the degree that each of us hope, it should change the system. But the system itself is reliant upon the processes in place today, right? Mm -hmm. You've got companies and organizations. You've got the whole idea of the prison industrial complex. Where does, where does that sit in the landscape and the ecosystem of the work that you all do? How do you fight this humongous monster? Like, what's the plan? How do you win? I don't think you know what you're doing right now. I mean, you are just getting ready to unleash a monster over here, okay? <laughs> I, 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 I already assumed that was coming. 
Oh, well, gosh. we know <laughs> as the monster comes out of the ship. No, but I mean, the system, the, the American criminal legal system was set up, it's doing exactly what it right. was designed to do. So we know that it's working, it's producing. I mean, if you think about, you know, in the in the early 80s, there were only about 214,000. I think that was the stat of people right. that were in our American prison system. Now we have 2.2 between 2.3 million. The why mm-hmm. happens in, in the early 90s with the crack Can I ask epidemic. Quick, when you say mm-hmm. the 2.2, 2.3, but isn't million. there only like 3 million in the whole world? Aren't we that significant? What do you mean three million in terms of incarceration? Right. I'm not I'm not sure about the whole world, okay. but like okay. you started off that we have five percent of the world's population for twenty-five percent. We have two point three million people, right? And wow. people can't imagine what that looks like. Think about a bunch of Mercedes-Benz stadiums full of people. That's I forgot crazy. I did the numbers. I think it was like 18 or 20 some odd stadiums wow. full of people incarcerated. And it's a hell of a visual. Right. Yeah. And so reimagining. The criminal legal system, reinventing it, it needs to be dismantled. And mm. this is what Ili Ilhamaski is saying, because I want to make sure people are clear, because there's a lot of pushback with this abolition, right. abolitionism. It needs to be dismantled. I, I agree. But it needs, it requires some very thoughtful people on what it looks like. I do believe that pe- there are consequences. I do believe in consequences. I have children. If they break mommy and daddy's rules, there are consequences. I don't believe in punishment. I don't punish my children. Now, when I grew up, mama said it was punishment. But they have consequences, Right. And so, yes, there are people who do bad things and they deserve to have consequences and, 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 and deal with that. But what does that look like? Our sentence structure in America is horrible. Does the punishment fit the crime? Absolutely not. We are literally sitting and watching in real time people who are doing life sentences for marijuana distribution. Mm. And I have seen 10 CBD stores in my neighborhood pop up in Mm. the state of Georgia, which is one of the most conservative Mm -hmm. states in the country. And so I go back to your question. We just need to dismantle this. But it requires some thought and some very smart people. And the people I talk about sitting at the table, we, we leave the prosecutors and the police, that side of the criminal legal system. We need good prosecutors. Right. We need good police officers. Don't, I don't want anybody to hear that. I don't think that's, that needs to happen. But we need to fix it. This system needs to be transformed. It was not set up to do it this way in the early when the country was founded. It was supposed to be the rehabilitative. It was supposed to be you stole some bread. Now what is the issue? It's a deterrence. Yeah. Let's get this family some help. Get him a job. Then they have food, then this doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so... Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. 
It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. But we, if, it's, if it doesn't benefit this country financially, we're going to always have this problem. Ava DuVernay's 13th documentary yeah. mm-hmm. is a prime. It shows you exactly yeah. this prison industrial complex. Yeah. And so until the new, a next generation of people realizes it's about people and it's not about profit, right. then we'll start to see some real change. Yeah. But in the, in, while we work, we'll just keep chipping, chipping away and be that little annoying chihuahua on the criminal legal system to make, to shine a light to say this is unfair. It's tough work though. It's t- I'm tired. I know. I know. I need is. more people like Jeremiah, Winfield <laughs> students sitting with us and my daughter and everybody to chip in because the old heads are getting, we're getting up there. And so we took over the John Lewis's, but John Lewis was a, a different kind of soul. He was a very unique. I don't think I have the 76, 77 years <laughs> left in me. But I'll work on it, John. I'll work on it, Congressman. <laughs> As you were talking, it made me think. I I did look up. I was I like numbers, right? Yeah. And I I got really interested when I started thinking about what the prison industrial complex meant. And actually, let me back up. Can you define and explain what that is for our listeners? The the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Sarah, why don't you? Do that? <laughs> I mean, I can, but I talk all the time. So I let Sarah do it. Well, it really goes back to a speech that Eisenhower gave mm-hmm. about the military industrial complex. About Sarah, this idea. Stay ready. She's yeah, she <laughs> she ready. Hey, you you invite a teacher on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you know, Eisenhower said that the military is is it's not gonna just stay small. It's right. going to expand. And it has. Yeah. Right. I mean, the Pentagon is a whole city, mm-hmm. right? Just given over Literally. to war. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I believe that the military has become a form of the military industrial complex. And we see it happening in other large institutionalized systems as well, mm-hmm. like the prison system. And so it's it's that the original purpose of prison, which in the United States, very enlightenment era. We thought this was going to be a reform to what they were doing in England, which was chopping off people's heads and torturing them, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you did. And so we said, as a democracy, when we founded this experiment— We can do better. We can do better. And and so our founding fathers, and they were men, (laughs) Mm -hmm. asked this question, what kind of punishment befits a democracy? (laughs) Right. And they said, instead of just torturing them publicly, let's make them better. (laughs) Right. Let's fix them. Let's reclaim, not destroy. Mm. And so that was the purpose. But when you take something and that's, and you know, states are getting kickbacks, right? Yeah. And there's all of these financial incentives, not the least of which is this to take socially and politically problematic people, mm. i.e., not white, mm-hmm. and get them off, get them out of the site. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly insidious and overly bureaucratic system. That's just, when you said the Chihuahua, I, I think that's a great metaphor, right? Because it's just this enormous system. And the, the complex, the military, the industrial complex part is just about systems blowing out of control mm-hmm. and creating a, you know, like, like micro forms of capitalism. <laughs> Yeah. Better than yeah. being perpetuated yeah. in yeah. in small towns and you know and all over the country. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And I think because when you mentioned small towns, because some of the, if everyone notices, you, you have to take the punishment is to remove people from their cities, their home life into this remote area. And if you look at where most prisons are located in this country, they're in the most desolate, mm-hmm. remote yes. areas to con- make it hard for families to visit. But then these little towns pop up around them. Yeah. And who is working in the prison? The people who live in the town. Well, if you shut the prison down, then there are hundreds of people who don't have jobs, who are not spending money in the stores that made up the little town. So that's part one piece of this prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Then another piece is cheap labor. And it's real. Men are getting paid, men and women, 48 cents an hour, 15 cents an hour in some places to build the very things that we all enjoy, cell phones, water bottles, all of these things. And companies are profiting from mm-hmm. it because they have cheap labor. Yep. And these are major yeah. companies. This ain't mom and pops. Major companies. Right off but why is that justifiable? Right. Right? Well, something ended in this country that was making this country a whole lot of money. Would that be slavery, Alex? Would that be slavery, Winfield? <laughs> Felt like yeah. we went into a game of Jeopardy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take slavery for right. And the 13th Amendment says that slavery is illegal unless convicted of a crime. Mm. And what we did to add to this complex is profit. People over profit. We have a mass incarceration problem in this country because we needed someone to do the manual labor so these big companies can make money. And people need to acknowledge that. We, I get a lot of pushback about education and third grade reading levels. And people are like, oh, there's no stats. There's nothing to back it up. There's no research. I find it very hard to believe that the men and women in prison that I've encountered and worked with and people in my very own family who could not read beyond a third grade reading level. It's no coincidence that the majority of them are in prison. Right now, it's no coincidence. And it feeds that mammoth machine strategy that Sarah's talking about. And so, when I say it needs to be abolished, dismantled, reimagined, it really does because, but it's not going to happen until we put people over profit. And it's just going to take a a large group of people and a generation and people to really say, it's messed up, right? It's messed up. And I think it takes imagination. We, as a country, we have imagination, but all we can conceive of in terms of when someone commits some kind of harm, the only thing we can, we can think about is, like, proportional harm. Yeah. We yeah. Have, like, seriously? We have not been able in this country to figure out, we have this metaphor of the scales, right? And if you do this, then you have to do that. And justice carries a sword. Oh, and, and justice just, is blind. And justice is blindfolded. It's completely saturated mm-hmm. in retribution. And mm-hmm. surely we're better than that. <laughs> I think we are. The people that I know are better than that. Well, it's better than cutting the head off, right? Well, <laughs> and that's Stick the argument. On a spike on the <laughs> yeah. That's the argument. Yeah. That's yeah. the argument. Well, it's, it's you know what? We don't, you know what? We've sanitized it though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because people thing. saw yes. it there, but we don't, you know. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You just do it and it's not as physical. It's, it's more it mental, emotional, family. Of while the head is falling. You yeah. capitalize on the, the. 
I have a question. I think, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. It, it Maybe it's a counter question, though. With the knowledge of the system, right, and this, this really strong capitalistic base that actually supports and propels it, mm-hmm. how do you think, the, do you think the Chihuahua route, right, will make a big impact? And I know the answer is yes, because we see impact. But to the impact of, like, transformational change of the system, because it's multiple systems. It's not just one. It's, it's, they're interconnected. They, they, they operate in a way that you can't really dismantle, you know, the prison system without dismantling policing. And, like, you, you can't. They're, they're, yeah, but you a lot of systems have to be uncovered. You don't want to dismantle. I'm not saying dismantle policing. It just needs to change the culture. So one of the things with our organization is changing the culture, right? Systemic culture is a problem. We have we grew up in this culture of retribution, of 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 punishment, right? And it's yeah. rethinking. It's really changing. If you think about organizational culture, right? Some of the best companies in the world, right, are good in people. I'll use Delta Airlines and I'm not supporting Delta Airlines, but in this, what is a little, <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, well, Delta is my own, but you know how they say the little caveat, but. Mm, right, we don't endorse. Delta used to be horrible from what I understand before I moved to Atlanta, right, 17 years ago. And the, the employees were upset, the baggage handlers, the, everybody, the, 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 the uh, customers were upset. Every, it was just bad. It, everything was late. Flights weren't coming on time. And it was just like, Delta Airlines, right? But Delta was very intentional about going in and asking their customers, their employees, what would make you happy? What could we do to improve? What do we need to do? And if you notice, there was an evolution in that airline. People speak to you. The captains come out when you exit, right, and say, Thank you for flying with mm-hmm. us. That was new. It had to change the culture. So when the captains did that, people were happy. People were like, oh, Delta Airline captains are so nice. I'm going to fly that airline again for one simple act. So to, go, to answer your question, yeah. it really requires people to shift their thinking and their mindset. And that's going to require the Chihuahua concept. Mm. I'll give you an analogy. The playbook that our organizations are use, using, it's not new. It comes from the leaders of the civil rights movement. Yeah. So, so they they didn't, there was, you know, before the cameras came, remember, there were people sitting at lunch counters, protesting, putting their kids in school before the media even showed. Mm. What happened was when the, the, the cameras came and saw people being hosed and lynched and things mm. like that, that's when America said, wait a minute. We need to do something. This makes us look bad. Mm-hmm. When they start yeah. allowing cameras in the prison, which they do in a cessationalism world, but the, mm-hmm. the real prison, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And see the impact on families and people who are have, impacted by the system and they start paying attention to it, what's happening to our children in juvenile detention, when you put that in front of somebody, how can you ignore it? That's when we're going to start seeing change. and so. It takes organizations like ours that keep pushing and pushing because there are people who have a lot more power than we do who are going to say at some point enough is enough because they're going to get tired of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're going to get tired of Sarah. They're going to get tired of Winfield and all the organizations that we work with. And it, yeah. the civil rights movement didn't happen overnight. 
Yeah. There were yeah. decades. Couldn't we speed this up if we transition from a chihuahua to a pack of hyenas? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or a lion. We could, but a I pack think... pack of tigers. I, I, yeah. You know, I, I, I want to, but like you said, this we have 400 now, 402 years right. of yeah. this yeah. issue of racism yeah. in the country. It's going to take at least half that time to make it right. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. you think about the criminal legal system, what's going on, it's going to take half the time. It is a marathon, not a sprint. That's right. And I think we we are so focused, especially in this quick age of getting our information fast and want our kids to do stuff and all of this overload. We want things to happen quick. Now, I do want the system abolished quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Don't hear me that. But it's going to take time. Yeah. It's going to take proximity, exposure, empathy, all that. Changing culture takes time. Mm-hmm. It does. I, I, know, I know you want a better answer than that, but it takes time. Well, I'm glad y'all got your no, running I, yeah. walking shoes on. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. I just think you know. I think I, I, I'm a systems guy, so I, I think in systems and structures. And I think um, over time, at what point does it accelerate? Right to where like we we say it takes time. It's a marathon. It's a journey. Like we say that all the time. Like we've been saying it for a long time. So I, I always wonder, like, with the great work that is done, how is it, how is it amplified to a point where I mean, it's a fever pitch to where it's like, oh my god, this is we got to change. With like everybody George feels Floyd. it, right? Yeah, like, like, yeah. how do we create like an array of those? Yeah, like, and just unleash it on on American society to where it's like. It's so impactful to me in my ivory tower, right? That I have to do something about it. Yeah. Like I have to, it, and that, that's 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 kind of the essence of the question. Is like, what is it? If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's, what can we do? at a massive level to make everyone kind of wake up to the inhumane treatment of humans. Like, we're dehumanizing people. We're still doing it. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just some, there are people more powerful than that. I think a lot of corporations in 2020 gave to organizations like mine and others when the unfortunate killing of George Floyd happened. When they, when I, we tell the story of if he had survived, he would have been arrested and he would have been assigned a public defender. Mm-hmm. And so you need to support organizations, our organization that does that. Yeah. And so I think really it is those very same companies that supported Sarah's organization, others, they need to continue to put their money where their mouth is yeah. because unfortunately that happened yeah. and a lot of nonprofits received funding mm-hmm. and then 21 happened and the decline of support. E- Yep, went yep. down. But th- because there's no one holding them accountable within their organizations mm-hmm. to say you need to do it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's because they're afraid to say anything. Yeah. And I think you you just can't be afraid. A lot of people aren't willing to stick their neck out for this work. We were doing this work before it was even popular. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's a hard question to answer because it it I go back to it takes time because people yeah. are like oh we gave our money yeah, George Floyd happened yeah. we did our part and we'll see you the next time maybe and we've we've got to believe that it can create the change we want to see around yeah. here yeah one thing we could do to change the system 
is, and this is radical, but it is necessary, is reparations. Yeah. Well, Sarah, that's why I love Sarah. Until until there is financial equity in this country, we will not be sufficiently motivated to address the systemic injustices. I agree. White people are not sufficiently motivated. I agree. To do it. Yeah. So um, it's a capitalistic approach. To to an answer, that's Mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. A bunch of our listeners would be so surprised to know that you're white. I yeah, be like, that's why. Wait a minute, why I love Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I want to ask one last question for for each of you. If today were December the twenty fourth in your organization, and the idea of Santa Claus or whomever is going to provide these <laughs> gifts, because in my house it is not Santa. It is. I can answer this me one. And Mom. <laughs> 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 Ready. She got that one. You said that one over to yes. her. Okay. <laughs> what is it that's at the top of your list? Oh, you're looking at me. Okay. I'm just, hey, whoever wants it. You were so excited. I'm going to be real. I'm just going to be real. I am getting ready to procure a building, purchase a building, so we can train more public defenders. It is a $10 million oh. cost capital campaign that we're going to launch. It's our 15-year anniversary. And we really need the support. We turn away public defenders Every six months who really want to do this work, we fundraise because their offices can't afford to send them. And they keep coming back and they stay engaged and they stay in the profession longer. And so honestly, that's my right now, my top of my list as executive director is to raise this $10 million over the next three years so that we can have this facility to not just train public defenders, but social workers, mm-hmm. investigators, mitigation specialists, work with people who are returning citizens and give them resources. So it's not just about public defense. It's representing the whole entire community who are impacted by public defender work. Yeah. So that's my my Santa Claus. If you could just bring this so my campaign isn't 10 years and it's only three I need $10 million to do what we need to do. I'm with it. Sarah? My my wish is we need an executive director. Mm -hmm. I have served as a volunteer executive director for Common Good Atlanta, but I'm really not an executive director. I don't have Illy's personality. You just (gasps) give me me a book, give me a copy of King Lear and a dry erase marker, and then I'm happy, (laughs) and a a group of students. But, you know, um, Jeremiah's been working with me. I don't think strategically about asking for money. You watch that. It doesn't ever occur to me to ask for money. And I would like to have an executive director for an organization like this who is system impacted, Mm -hmm. who is a person of color, instead of, you know, this, okay, here's this woman who's white. I would love Common Good Atlanta to have. So if you're out there, if you're getting tired of your corporate job (laughs) (laughs) and you would like to give back to the community, consider coming on, working for Common Good Atlanta. The pay won't be as much, but the reward is everything. Will be immense. And there are a lot of people out there who could use your leadership. Get your resumes together. You heard it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Winfield, you got anything, brother? Um, I think when it comes to what I do at Morehouse for a lot of first-generation college students and therefore first-generation law students is obviously I would implore people to support HBCUs because we don't get the type of funding that other schools get and we could 
definitely use it. Um, obviously, I'm biased because I went to Morehouse and I teach at Morehouse. So, <laughs> you know, I, I would love for it to come to Morehouse. Um, but the other thing is, is that even if you don't have uh, financial resources to give, if you are a law firm and you're looking for interns, then reach mm-hmm. out to me because my students need exposure. They need to see what it's like not only to work for uh, a public defender's office or a prosecutor's office's office or a judge, but they need to see what a small firm looks like and a medium-sized firm looks like and a large law firm looks like. And a lot of times they don't get those opportunities, if at all, until they're already in law school and they've already made some decisions that are going to impact the trajectory of their life. And so I run this, I consider it the top free law program in the country. It is. Because I do it. Yes, Um, it is. And I'm sure Jeremiah would agree with me. Um, Give us the opportunity to expose more students to more things law, more law-related things. Mm -hmm. So that would be my wish list. All right. At the end of every episode, we have our guests close us out. This is your opportunity to share whatever it is that's on your heart to share with the Wild Black audience. And I am not even going to pretend to jump in and decide this order. You all can figure this out amongst yourselves. Mm. But I do ask that you tell people your website, how to get in contact with the organization, and anything else that you want to tell them. <laughs> Everybody's just looking at each it, other. It, it, it's really on uh, Common Good Atlanta and getting us promised, but I will say if you want to find me, um, you can go to the Morehouse website. There's a nifty little page or pre-law and me, um, feel free to reach out to me, contact me, or you can always go to LinkedIn and reach out to me. So, well, You can find Gideon's Promise at gideonspromise.org. So gideonspromise.org, all the information is on the website. And we are at commongoodatlanta.com. Um, I will say that there's a, an Atlanta filmmaker, Hal Jacobs, who is releasing actually this week, a documentary about Common Good Atlanta. So it'll be, you know, there'll be showings all at colleges and universities and libraries around the city. So if you have time and you could come by and see firsthand the work that we're doing in the documentary, there'll always be a talk back with people that um, that we had the privilege of teaching when they were on the inside. I love it. I love it. Last thing, wasn't, wasn't Gideon's Promise associated with a documentary you know, or a film or We something? were, I don't know how I messed up and not say that. I'm I'm a bad ED. Um, <laughs> I just, like, I remember fantastic. seeing the name. Yeah, so Gideon's Army was a doc, an HBO documentary that was released in 2013 by filmmaker Don Porter, who also did the film Good Trouble. Mm. It was her, we were her first film. So it talks about the inequities um, in the South and public defenders fighting. So check out Gideon's Army. It's on Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, it was something else. And Gideon's Promise, I forgot to mention, is called, we name, we're named Gideon's Promise after the 1963 decision, mm. Gideon v. Wainwright, which Clarence Earl Gideon was accused of stealing in a Florida, from a Florida pool hall. He was represented, he represented himself. He was convicted and he wrote a letter to the U.S. Supreme Court saying a layperson cannot fight against the mighty arm of the state, of the government. And so everyone is entitled to defense counsel, regardless of their ability to pay. We are Gideon's promise because until the promise of that decision is met, our organization will continue to exist. All right, brother, you got anything? 
Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that last question about Santa Claus. <laughs> I got two things. All right. One is tactical, then one is strategic. The tactical request for Santa, and Santa, I think, is a black man. Kind of look like us. Um, His name is... is- Vince, as far as I'm concerned. This is my first one. I wish and hope that we have more superheroes like y'all. Mm. Like the 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 stories and the impact. It's not just about like the, the stories that you tell, but it's about the lives that you actually touch and truly transform in the meaningful ways of the work that you do. And there's no there's no capitalistic dollar value that's associated to that. That's just pure love and humanity, and that and it deserves a, a, a greater applause than than time even has to to provide. That's my tactical one. Strategically, a way to absolutely blow up and transform the system quickly, yeah. because we got to get more human in order for us to be better as yeah as people. And that's it. Cool. Wild Black, I don't have much. I was sitting here thinking about the episode. And, and what comes to me is that we're, we're talking to like real life superheroes today who do real life superhero shit. And it's the kind of thing that we all need to see change, mm-hmm. whether you recognize it in your world or not. And you may not be a superhero and that's okay. But what you do have is superhero opportunity and superhero moments. And I think you need to spend time with yourself deciding when to have your moment, and how to spend that moment. What currency is it that your superhero moment will come in, and how do you push that into the system to create a difference that impacts you, your family, your friends, your community, your circle, your world? Each of these people here today is making a difference. I'd love to see where you make your difference. I would love to see your superhero moment happen now. So you heard how they need help. You heard the things that they're trying to do. You heard their wish lists. Hit the episode notes, find out how you can donate, find out how you can support, and then do so. With that, Wild Black, we out. Peace. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's.